given to us. So Ephesians chapter 4 seems the best place to start. So verses 1 through 11. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all things, so that far above the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Please be seated. Now, I did a little research on being a shepherd that is actually a shepherd of four-legged sheep in the United States. Uh, they make an average of about $21 an hour. That's about $45,000 a year. Between 2018 and 2028, the uh, career projector expects that uh, it will grow, this particular profession will grow about 1%, uh, and that's producing about 10,900 job opportunities. So if you're interested in being a shepherd, looks like now is your time. Uh, there are approximately 2,857 job openings for shepherds in the U.S. job market. The annual salary, then uh, 45000 to 53000 and about 60% of shepherds actually have bachelor's degrees, degrees in shepherdology, I guess. Um, by taking a look at resumes, we find that the most common skills that are placed on a resume for a shepherd are dexterity, listening skills, and physical strength. I'm not sure who you're listening to. Uh, Maybe listening for wolves or something, I don't know. But So those are the skills that a shepherd should have as based on the resumes. And of course, a shepherd's job is difficult. If you, I was looking at one of the uh, job descriptions for a shepherd in Utah, and it says, a herder, or shepherd, a shepherd has to stay with the sheep 24 hours a day through the roughly 10-month period on the open range in sun and rain, hail and snow, whether temperatures climb above 100 degrees or drop below zero. The workday begins at sunup and ends at sundown. Although there may be nights when you need to help the guard dogs scare off a coyote or a mountain lion, there are no weekends or holidays off. So you're welcome to join this man in Utah and shepherd his sheep. Now, I would say the description of that, the shepherd of the four-legged sheep, is perhaps not too far off from what the shepherd of a spiritual flock might expect. And it's to shepherding that we turn this morning, taking a break from 1 Corinthians and really trying to determine how is it that God has designed the church so that there are shepherds who are appointed to oversee the flock, and yet those very shepherds are part of the flock themselves, and then how the flock responds back to the shepherds as we walk together seeking to glorify and honor Christ. Now, the Lord has, by His grace, caused us here at Grace, our, this particular local church, has given us really a large influx of people over the past several years. And we certainly recognize that this is no merit of our own, but simply because God has seen fit to build his church numerically in this particular season. We're doing the exact same thing that we've been doing for the past 20 years, preaching the word, praying, and seeking to equip the saints for the works of service. We've not invented some great new method or new program, which is bringing more people. 
the truth of the word of God, the power of the spirit of God, the exercise of the purpose of God, these are the only true means of church growth. However, while we've not purposed to produce numerical growth, we are responsible to wisely shepherd all whom the Lord has brought to us during this time. So that's why we want to take a bit of a break. We want to talk about what that shepherding actually means and really some of the things that we are seeking to do to help equip you for the works of service and then talk through the issues of how the congregation then takes those methods, takes those ministries and presses them into the body of Christ and out into the world. Now, even a casual study of the Word of God reveals that the church has a specific structure, organization, and function that are all designed to help it to become the effective witness to the world that it was designed to be. And really, Ephesians 4 demonstrates that the primary way in the church that the church is to live out her purpose is first and foremost by grace. Well, Ephesians is the book of grace. The Bible is a book of grace. And in Ephesians chapter 4, as we will talk about the gifts that the Lord gives, gifted men, and then the gifts he gives to the congregation, we will see and be reminded that all of this is by grace. However, it's not a grace that is kind of the cheap grace of the world that never offends or never presses into the lives of people to challenge them to walk with God. No, it's a specific grace that Jesus grants to the church through the provisions of gifts of grace to each member. These gifts, as we will see, were purchased by Christ through his death and his burial and his resurrection so that the church might properly reflect the character of Christ and the wisdom of God. Now, contrary to what is, is modern in thinking about the church is that the church is certainly not a random group of individuals who define themselves in any way according to their own desire to do church in some sort of cultural norm. God has ordained that the only biblically sanctioned structure for the church is grace-fueled work of evangelists and pastors and teachers who equip the saints for the works of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So what we'll see this morning is that God has ordained elders to be the primary means through which the members of the church are equipped to exalt Christ by being conformed to his image. God has ordained elders to be the primary means through which the members of the church are equipped to exalt Christ by being conformed to his image. Elders exist as a conduit through which the greatness of Christ is to be magnified. Now, the purpose of our study in understanding the structure and function of the church is so that we might be able to be a strong, deep, passionate, effective, caring church that we might carry out the work God has given and reflect the nature of our Lord, his very character. Now, as we come to verse 7 of Ephesians 4, and really we'll be looking at verse 7 and then jumping down to verse 11 and talking about the nature of gifted men to the church, the Apostle Paul has just explained what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have received. He has laid out the example, the urgency, the calling, the characteristics, and the goal of a worthy walk. Now he transitions really to speak about the nature of the grace God gives the church so that the church can live out that godly walk, that worthy walk in the manner that he has just described. Again, it's not my intent to exegete this entire passage. This is multiple sermons over many weeks and we did this years ago. But as I begin with verse 7, I just want to remind you of the grace necessary of, of the work of Christ to then bring grace to his people that we might be able to accomplish his work by grace. So we will look at the gifts of grace, the gift of gifted men, and then the particular gift of pastor teachers or elders. So as we jump right into verse 11, as we consider the nature of that text, you'll see 
but to each one of us. And really, there's a mild contrast there. In verses 1 through 6 of Ephesians 4, Paul is talking about the unity of the body, how we all need to carefully guard that unity because there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. But now he's going to transition to talk about the fact that in that oneness, there is diversity. Right? That unity is not uniformity, as John MacArthur says. There's a consistent diversity of the gifts of God in the church. God's gracious relationship to all of us is a personal relation to each one and a personal ministry through each one. Paul will move from the unity of believers to the uniqueness of believers, that we are each a recipient of God's grace. So that's number one. We are the recipient of gifts, and that is each one of us, but to each one of us grace was given. So in this unity that we share, as we press forward to exalt Christ, you have each been given a unique gift of grace in order to accomplish that purpose. Every single individual within the church who is a true believer has this unique gift, and it's the gift of God's grace. That's the substance of it. It is not your natural giftedness. It is not, it is not your natural abilities to accomplish things. The substance of this gift is the grace of God. The grace that God has purchased for us, provided to us, and then used to enable us to accomplish his very work. Uh, grace essentially is God demonstrating his favor towards us in providing us all the necessary power and resources to bring him the glory he commands of us and deserves from us. Favor demonstrated in supernatural provision. So grace is not just God emoting towards us. I, I have favor towards you. It is in his favor he then pours out upon us his strength and power to accomplish the very things that he asks of us, those things which will exalt his name, which will cause Christ to look good. By its very definition, grace is what is given to you apart from merit. So no gift that you have, this, this grace gift that he provides for you, was not merited by you. You received it at the moment of salvation apart from anything that you could have done to earn it. And that's the beauty of your gift, that you didn't somehow have to do something or, or go to school to study for it. It was granted to you by God's grace and really is a conduit of his grace so that every person in the body has an equal ability to exercise their gift. You don't all have an equal gift, but you all have equal ability to exercise it because it comes by grace. Not your intelligence or your physical capabilities or, or your charisma, your, personal, per, your, your personality. It comes through the work of God. Grace, again, says MacArthur, is God's self-donation, his self-giving. He not only gives blessings to men, he gives himself. Infinitely more important and precious than any blessing God gives us is that gift of himself, the spirit of God coming to live inside of us. The incomprehensible and staggering truth of the gospel is that the holy God of the universe has given himself to sinful mankind. And as believers, then, we are stewards of this grace. Ephesians 3, 2, Paul speaks of his own stewardship. He says, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that's the preaching of the gospel. Ephesians 3, 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. And 1 Peter 4, 10, as each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God, God's unmerited favor poured out upon you in power is to be stewarded by you to accomplish the purposes that he has given. It's not to be hidden. It's not to be denied. It's not to be complained about. 
It is to be actively stewarded into the life of the church so that God's grace then flows out through you uniquely, enabling the church to grow and be built. Well, what's the timing of these gifts? Right? The recipient of the gift, each of us, the substance of the gift, grace, the timing of the gift, it says was given. So the timing is really at the moment of salvation. As we will see, the gifts were purchased really or, or, or gained by Christ through his death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. But they were given then to each individual when you came to know Christ, when you put faith and trust in Christ as a result of the work of God in your heart. So these, grace, these gifts were given and then the measure of the gift. Well, what are these? And how much did you get? And, and, and what, is, what is the, the gift actually, how is it measured out to you? It says the measure of the gift is the measure of Christ's provision. So back in our text, to each one of us, verse 7, this grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. And this idea of measure is that God carefully designed this gift of grace and and granted it to you, dispensed it to you in exactly the proportion that he desired. The idea is not that he gives some people more faith than others, more of a giftedness than others. No, it's simply that he gives them a different measure. That is, each of your gifts is different. The way that grace flows through each of you looks different for every single one. That's the measure of it. And this idea of, of measure really is, it's like in chemistry, the importance of measuring just right to create the proper you know, combination so that the reaction that you desire goes forward. Well, that's exactly how it is with God's grace. He measures it out to you. Again, not, in, not limiting it, but shaping it and designing it so the proper work happens in his church. And he makes no mistakes, which is why every person has to be involved. He didn't call you to come and be part of this church, direct you here so that your gift would not be used. In fact, it has to be used so that we can be strong, so that the grace of God actually is manifest ever increasingly in our body. That's why he gave you that gift, and he gave it to each one of you, and he gave it according to his own measurement, not yours. So I'm like, well, I don't think I got much grace. No, he gave you exactly the kind of grace, the measure of grace that you need. Titus 2 speaks of the grace of God, and really God's grace appears to us and is manifested to us in a variety of different kinds of blessings. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So grace comes and saves us. Grace comes to sanctify us. But the process of that salvation and sanctification actually flow through the grace that is given to the church to proclaim the gospel and to live the gospel in ways that enable people to grow in godliness, these unique gifts that are given. And this idea of a measuring of the, of the gift, that is God granting it to you in a unique package, is really seen strongly in Romans chapter 12. Paul says, for through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. That's the idea. Again, not withholding it, not measuring it out in careful portions so you don't get too much. We tend to think of measuring that way. No, measuring is carefully designing and dispensing it to you in just the right amount for you to exercise the particular gift that God has given. He goes on to say in Romans 12, for just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us exercise them accordingly. And again, 
grace given is equally valuable to all. So that's a, this has nothing to do with the value of your gift or how powerful that gift is. There are gifts that are more evident and obvious than others, but all of them are equally fueled by grace and equally effective by grace. There are no, there are no paupers when it comes to the grace given and the gifts that God has given to you. The measure of each individual person's gift is different because the gift is different. It is one believer receiving a gift from God, and it is also true that you're not restricted to one category of giftedness. An individual gift may include a number of specific areas of giftedness in a limitless variety of combinations. Someone will say a gift of administration may also have some of the gift of helps and of teaching. Believers' gifts are like snowflakes. They're like fingerprints, each one completely distinct from the other. Some teachers may emphasize knowledge, some instruction, some mercy, others exhortation. From the palette of gift colors that the Holy Spirit uses, he brushes out his sovereign design to paint the mixture of each believer so that no two are alike. That's John MacArthur again. The beauty of his giftedness makes each of us unique but also necessary in the body of Christ. And that's why gifts tests don't work. Right? Those are really popular in the 80s and 90s. You know, you fill out this thing and say, well, my gift is, well, your gift was pretty much whatever you wanted it to be. Right? This is the thing I like to do, so it ended up being, that's how, that's how those gifts, you know, those tests that you take to find out which job you should do. I remember I did mine, and it was chicken rancher. <laughs> Maybe it should have said shepherd, because here we are. But nonetheless, those things just kind of all work out so that, you know, you mix and match and you kind of, the things you're predisposed toward, that's what happens. You cannot make tests for gifts. The test for, gift, for gifting is the church. The test is every day as you come and pour out your ministry in whatever place the Lord has directed you and the elders of the church have helped you and the uniqueness of your gifting will flow out in each place that you minister. And so that unique gift will be used of the Lord to strengthen and build up the body. Now, we're going to jump all the way down to verse 11. There's a lot of ground covered in verses 8 through 10, but I'm not going to cover them. I'm just going to give you a summary. In verses 8 through 10, Paul then explains the origin and purpose of the gifts that he's bestowed upon the church. These gifts were won by Christ through his death, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, in which he defeated sin and death and hell and all the spiritual powers. Your gifts are a result of Christ's victory. His victory prize to you is the giftedness that he has granted you so that his church might go forward in power. Christ has been raised in power. He has ascended to the right hand of the Father. He has left the church to accomplish his work through the giftedness that he earned, that he purchased, that he won for you through his conquering of sin and death and hell, all of the evil powers, all of the, of the uh, spiritual forces that are revealed in Ephesians chapter 6. He defeated them all, and his giftedness is the special grace he's given you as a result of that victory. Peter O'Brien says, Christ now sets out to accomplish the goal of filling all things by supplying his people with everything necessary to foster the growth and perfection of the body. Having achieved dominion over all members of his body, the building of the body is now inextricably linked with his intention of filling the universe with his rule since the church is his instrument in carrying out his purposes of the cosmos. That's what verses 9 and 10 were about. All right, if he descended, he ascended, went back up in victory, was also the one who descended and, what, and did what? Won the victory. But the whole purpose you see at the end of verse 10 is that he might fill all things. Christ's one goal 
is that he would be magnified above all things, that he would rule and reign for all of eternity, that he would be exalted. That's what Ephesians 1 says, that everything is to be summed up. Everything in the universe is to be summed up in Christ. The church is doing something much bigger than just kind of moving about from day to day and accomplishing its various tasks. The church has been tasked to be used of God to exalt Christ to the highest place that he might fill the entire universe. That's what we're doing. It's a lot bigger task than sometimes we, we consider, and that's the task that every person's giftedness is needed for. Well, the first avenue of giftedness that he dispenses to his church in order that all the other gifts might be used are gifted men. And so jump down now to verse 11. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. One aspect of his grace giving, of the gifts that he gives, are the unique giftednesses that then wrap themselves out of, or flesh themselves out in particular offices that he's given to the church. These are both giftedness and office. An apostle was an office in the early church, and it was also a giftedness that was given. Prophecy was the same. It was a giftedness given, but also an office. It is the same for evangelism. It is the same for pastors and teachers. So first we see that these gifted men who are given are used of God to then equip the saints for the works of service. So these specially gifted men, not above or beyond the congregation in their power or strength, simply with different giftings, these are those who are used by God to draw out all of the other gifts that have been given to each member of the congregation. So let's look at them briefly. All right, the, there was a gifted, the gifted men giving being given the gift of apostle. And that apostle, we would see here as we might call them big A apostles. Those who had been seen the risen Christ, had been given the gospel by the risen Christ, and were appointed to take the message by the risen Christ himself. Ephesians 1, Paul says, I am an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And so those apostles were granted to the church. That gift of apostle was given so that the church would have the proper giftedness necessary for its founding. If one had the gift of an apostle, one held the office of apostle, and the apostles were to lay the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.19. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. So this unique giftedness, these uniquely gifted men were given to the church so that it would have its initial foundation. That is through the proclamation of the gospel and then the writing of scripture, the finalizing of the canon, the, the, the New Testament books necessary so that the church would have all that it needs in order to progress until Christ returns again. That was the apostle's task. No small task. Establish the church throughout the known world and write the necessary scriptures, the words of God himself given to them and then written by them so that the church would have everything that it needs for life and godliness. 2 Peter 1.20, speaking of this writing of scripture that the apostles were given, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What the apostles wrote was the very word of God, which is open to only then one interpretation because God means one thing as he writes through his people. And so it's a necessary word so that we might be able to really live out the giftedness that God has given. So these initially gifted men, these apostles, were absolutely necessary for all the other gifts in the church to be activated. 
essential to have apostles. They had the highest authority in the New Testament church. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 14, which we will eventually get to, if anyone thinks he's a prophet or spiritual, let him recognize the words which I write to you are the Lord's commandment. But if anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. Right? I'm an apostle, says Paul. This is what the Lord tells you to do. This is his command. And so he uses his prophetic or his apostolic authority. But it's, it's linked really directly to prophetic authority and to the office of prophet. In fact, it's really clear that in, in the gifts given in 1 Corinthians uh, 12, 13, and 14, that there is a hierarchy. First apostles, then prophets, third teachers, and then it moves its way down to the other ones. There is a hierarchy here, apostles and then prophets. Well, why? Because apostles spoke, wrote the very inspired word of God, the very words of God himself. Prophets spoke these words. Right? They could also write them down. The apostles were also prophets, each of them. However, then the prophets, not all of them were apostles. In fact, there were many more prophets. They partnered with the apostles to continue to proclaim the necessary word for the church to grow while the scripture was being written. So the apostles and prophets lay the foundation because they bring the directly inspired word of God. When a prophet spoke as a prophet, he was speaking the word of God, authoritative and direct to the people. And there were prophets then in each church. There were only 12 apostles. 13 of you count the apostle Paul. right? And then the prophets would fill in for the necessary work to proclaim God's direct words because scripture was still being written. It's why in 1 Corinthians 14, Paul says, look, you ought to desire prophecy. Not because it's ongoing, not because we still have prophets today, but because then they didn't have the fullness of scripture and had an absolute necessity to hear from God on a regular basis his direct words we do too, but we have them all. See, we have the same need to hear the direct words of God, but we have all of them that have been given. They did not. And so that was the special and unique gift of prophet, who received, one who received infallible direct revelation for the purpose of edification, instruction, and warning in the local church. Sometimes they spoke revelation. Sometimes they expounded scripture. Sometimes they made predictions about things that would come, just like Old Testament prophets. In Acts 13.1, you have a prophet who, or Acts 15, 13, you have prophets who strengthen the church. Acts 13, 1. It says that we're at Antioch in the church, prophets and teachers. Fascinating, that's not the same office. Prophets and teachers. Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manahan, who had been brought up with Herod. So the prophets followed the apostles going to the churches, being gifted to proclaim directly to them the word of God. Ephesians 3, 5 says, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. Those are New Testament prophets, New Testament apostles, and they were the ones who brought the word of God to the people. There's no indication anywhere in the Bible that the gift or office of prophet takes on any different kind of meaning in the New Testament than the old. It's the same. It's simply that you now have the New Testament church that is being built up where you had, you had Old Testament Israel before and you're under the New Covenant, not the Old. So for example, if a prophet is not exactly correct in the New Testament, he isn't stoned to death, he's simply removed from his office of prophet. Done. No more prophecy for you. You got it wrong. You're not a prophet, period. Same rules apply, both Old and New Testament. It's just not the same penalty, thankfully. A lot of dead people in the early church, if that had been the case. Well, then third, you have evangelists one who declares the good news, essentially a missionary, one who travels to preach the gospel, those who have the gift of evangelism. They take the word of the apostles and prophets, that gospel that was laid down by them, they take it to the rest of the world to win converts. 
established churches, shepherd churches, and would appear that the apostles, again, very uniquely gifted, the apostles were prophets, and most of the apostles were also evangelists. Certainly the apostle Paul was. And so he goes and proclaims the truth of the gospel and then seeks to establish a church in that area. Evangelists were not men with 10 suits and 10 sermons, right? Stick the suits in the back of the car, go around to go and, and do the same sermon everywhere to spark revival. That's how they do it here in the South or have done it. No, an evangelist was one who had the pastoral gift as well so that he could go and help establish a church. There seemed to be two kinds of evangelists, those who would establish a church and stay long enough for it to be built and to see elders established there to shepherd it until there were other shepherds, and then they would move on. And then there were those evangelists who then simply moved into the office of pastor, teacher, of elder, and they stayed after having established or built that church. So we would see... I think very clearly that the apostles and prophets, those who speak direct revelation, are no longer giftednesses given to the church. Why? Because the foundation has been laid. There is no more foundation. There's no more scripture to be written, no more word of God to come forth, no more direct revelation necessary. So those two offices have accomplished their task. People say, well, I mean, you say the Spirit of God isn't working anymore. Of course he's working. There are things that he has finished. He's no longer writing scripture because if he is, we're in really serious trouble. How are we going to determine who's writing scripture these days? So these offices are done. However, the next two offices, or the office of evangelist, is still necessary. A uniquely gifted man to preach and teach the word, really used by God to move into various areas and draw people through that preaching and teaching. Gifted men that the Lord continues to use. And then this final gift, the gift of elders. Right? It says here, evangelist and pastors and teachers. And I don't think there has to be a hard and fast determination made, okay, it's only pastor teachers, that is only speaking of elders, I think it, there is one office which is a shepherd and teacher, I think you also have teachers in the church who aren't shepherds, but really you can't ever have an, an, the office of, of a shepherd without there also being a teacher, they have to be gifted to do both, so I think it is good to see this as the gift of eldership. These pastor teachers are given to the church as those who then strengthen and build the church in the absence now of apostles and prophets, using what the apostles and prophets left behind, which is the written scriptures. The inspired word of God, used by the shepherd teachers, the pastors, in order that the church would be built up. Now, the definition then of elders. Really, there are three separate words used in the Bible for one who functions as an elder. That's the word shepherd. We see English word. It's poimen in the Greek, right? Shepherd. There's overseer. That's the word episkopos, right? And then there's elder. That's presbyteros. Those are the Greek words underneath it. And all of those words are used in scripture to describe the one office that Paul is talking about here. God gives a unique gifting of this elder, this pastor, teacher, so that the church can be built up. This does not make him greater than any other member of the congregation. This does not make him more impressive, more powerful, or in any way more important. It simply is a unique giftedness, and it is not given to all. It is a gift that is granted by God, and then that man himself becomes a gift. Those men themselves become a gift to the church. I didn't say it. That's what the Apostle Paul says. This unique giftedness that he has purchased for his church really begins with the gifted men because they are the ones who fan into flame the use of the giftedness of the rest of the congregation. They're essential so that the giftedness that God has given to the church will go forth properly. It's one office, right? First Peter 5, 1 through 3, really Peter uses all the words. And this is where we see that he as an apostle was also an elder. 
Peter says in 1 Peter 5.1, Therefore I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. And by the way, that's the handoff. So the apostles were commissioned by Christ. Christ commissions Peter. And really, remember, Peter is representative of all the apostles. Right? When, when Jesus gives something to Peter, he's giving that to the office of the apostolic office. And at the end, in John chapter 21, what does Jesus say to Peter? Feed my sheep. He, he commissions him as a shepherd, as an elder, as well as an apostle. And so the apostles function as the first elders. We see this even in Jerusalem. And then they appoint the rest of the elders who will follow, even though there are no longer any more apostles. So it goes from Jesus to the apostles. He appoints them as both apostles and elders. And then it goes from the apostles as elders to appoint those elders into the local churches. And then down throughout time until Christ returns, elders then perpetuate other elders. The church perpetuates those elders through the appointment, the ongoing appointment of elders. So the definition of elder... That one who is a shepherd, the one who is an overseer, who is, uh, so we call it presbyter, but simply a wise, mature man or as an elder. By the way, First Peter goes on to say to those men, he says, shepherd the flock of God among you. Right, there's our word shepherd appointment. Exercising oversight. There's the overseer. Right? Shepherd, elder, overseer, all in First Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Well, the appointment of elders. The appointment of elders, and I alluded to this already. The elders were appointed by the apostles, and they were carefully appointed in each church. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason I left you in Crete, says Paul to Titus, who was really his apostolic emissary to establish that church in a way that was pleasing to the Lord, laying that foundation. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. Well, what's the final thing that needed to be done? The gospel had been preached. The church had started to gather, so he had a group of people. What needed to be done? He says, and appoint elders, plural, in every city as I directed you. This was intentional by the early church apostles who then in every church appointed elders, plural, Acts 14, 23. When they had appointed elders for them in every church, this is Paul and Barnabas as they go back through, the gospel having been preached, people being gathered, the word of God being taught, he then establishes elders. That's kind of the final crowning piece of what makes something a church. You are not a church until you have elders. The word might be being preached, people might be gathered, the gospel might be properly presented. It is not a church until there is a plurality of elders. The Bible makes this incredibly clear. It couldn't be any more clear. Everywhere there was to be a church, there was a necessity of having a plurality of qualified elders, and Jesus began that with Peter, who then perpetuates it, and the other apostles perpetuate it in all of the churches. And we see this in action, say, in Acts 20, verse 17, when Paul calls. Remember, he goes to Ephesus. He essentially establishes the church there, and when he leaves, he leaves a group of elders. And then when he's going back, heading back to Jerusalem, he calls that group of elders to be with himself. Philippians 1.1 to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the elders and deacons. So these offices are well-established, absolutely necessary. So if someone's walking around today on the streets and they go, well, you know, I'm a Christian. Well, the next thing you ask them, really, so where's the body of Christ that you fellowship with? And they go, well, it's so-and-so. Well, what's the group of elders that you're under? Well, we don't, you know, I mean, we just we hang out. We're a, we're a home church. We, we don't have elders. You're not a church. Right, you're gathering together, you're preaching the word, fine, but you don't have a group of elders that you answer to or that are really used of God to, to bring out the giftedness of the church. You're not a church. Very well, clearly established here. He gave these men to the church so that they would, and we'll talk about this next week, equip the saints for the works of service. Well, these elders are required to have qualifications. 
Right? Paul follows this up. We're given the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus, where it gives the qualifications of these men. They can't just be any men. It cannot be just any believer. While all elders are sheep, as it were, the shepherds, under shepherds are also sheep, they are uniquely, uniquely qualified. Now, the unique qualification is something that every person in the church ought to aspire to. They're simply the qualifications of mature Christians in Christ, but they're essential. You may not have a man in eldership who does not meet these qualifications. Therefore, it will always be true that every man in the church is not qualified to be an elder. It's simply how it works. Right? There's varying growth of maturity. Now, it would be delightful if in every church every man was actually qualified to do this, but the new believer certainly is never going to be. Right? So you're going to have to always work through this process of maturity. Well, first... Timothy chapter 3, you can go and turn there. And again, I realize we have our diminishing time this morning, but I simply want to just give this overview and then we'll flesh out the nature of the elders' work with the congregation next week and really in the week to follow. But first, Timothy, you're familiar with this chapter 3, speaks of these qualifications necessary. Says it is a trustworthy statement. If a man aspires to be an overseer, he desires a noble task. The overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all respect. If a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? And not a new convert so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. He must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So this qualified man must be above reproach in his character. He's one who sacrificially loves and leads his wife. Imagine an elder who doesn't sacrificially care for his wife, who doesn't lay his life down for her, who doesn't lead her wisely and well. He's immediately unqualified for that task. He sacrificially loves and humbly leads the flock. That's what this character is all about. This character is not some kind of self-righteous man who believes himself to be above the rest of the congregation. Look, I'm more mature than you. Look what I can do. And somehow impresses his will upon that congregation because he views himself as somehow above them. That man is automatically disqualified for eldership instantly if he believes himself above those that he is shepherding. He is beneath them. He is their servant. He is the one who loves them and gently cares for them. He sacrificially loves and humbly leads the flock. He lays his life down. If he doesn't do this for his wife, he's certainly not going to do it for the congregation. This is the necessary qualification. That's what all his character is about. He's not pugnacious. He doesn't fight. He's hospitable. He's gentle. He's careful. He's discerning. This is built into what a true elder does. He humbly, graciously, gently, kindly, lovingly leads the sheep. Though he's above reproach in his character, he's a skilled overseer of his home. It's also necessary that he's able to manage his household. It's not a mess. It's not a wreck. It's carefully directed and focused on Christ. It doesn't mean the, you know, he has to have the back deck stained all the time. That's not the issue. The issue is that his home is not out of control when it comes to his wife and his children focusing upon Jesus. If he cannot manage that, he cannot do it in the church. There's an oversight function that is necessary there that flows into the church. There's a maturity in faith. He's exercised faith over the long haul. He trusts in God, which means he obeys him in every principle. That's faith. Faith exercised is always obedience. And he obeys out of love for Christ every 
principle of the word of God to the greatest of his ability at every moment of his life all the time. That's an elder. Does he fail? Yes. Does he sin? Yes. How does he exercise faith when he sins? He repents. He confesses. And he has zealous repentance. This man has an excellent reputation. If he talks to people around him or outside of him, he goes out to interact with businesses or he has a business himself or works and things, people would say, that's a man that I respect. Now, sometimes people will not respect a man because they hate that he is a man of character. That happens. I mean, anyone who's accurately analyzing that elder will say, that's a man of respect, a man of integrity, a man who works hard, a man who's diligent, a man who's faithful. He must have that kind of reputation and he must be skilled in teaching. Titus 1.9, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. Now, every elder will teach at a varying level. On an elder board, there will be varying levels of ability to teach, but all must be able to teach. What's the function of elders? They're to lead and oversee. Right? These are really built into the words. They lead the flock. Hebrews 13 says, obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls. That means they're leading. In order to lead, somebody has to follow Nobody's following, they're not leaders. It's not how it works. We're leading. Hey, go where we go. And they're looking around, there's nobody there. You're not a leader, sorry. So you have to have the character necessary for people to follow. Elders cannot just demand that people follow them. If they don't have proper character and they're not living according to biblical principles, nobody ought to be following. So yes, there's a submission to the elder leadership as they are qualified and presenting the truths of Scripture as they're worthy to be followed because they keep watch over the souls of the church. Let them do this with joy, not with grief, says Hebrews 13, 17. First Timothy 5, 17, the elders who rule well, who oversee well, who instruct well, are to be considered worthy of double honor. Again, they're within that elder board, there will be those who then spend all of their time preaching and teaching because that's their unique giftedness. Not that they're better overseers, not that they're better elders, they're uniquely gifted even on the elder board to accomplish that particular task. Elders lead the congregation, elders are followed by the congregation, because they feed, right? They teach the flock. They take the word of God and they teach it wisely and well so that the church can then use their giftedness. That teaching is a means of equipping, not a means of an elder elevating himself. Too often the teacher of a church is elevated either above the other elders or somehow above the rest of the congregation. How can that be? A church is not defined by the individual who does the majority of teaching. It is, designed, it is defined by the word of God. That individual must be constantly subjugating themselves under the other elders and under the church as a whole so that he will be seen as one who is simply serving the flock, laying his life down in the preaching and teaching of the word of God. That's what that's about. No more celebrity pastors. It's wonderful to, to respect a man for teaching well. That's fine. But he does not define the church. The church is defined by its people by the active people working. And that elder, the elders, and the elder who does, this elder worthy of double honor who does a lot of the preaching and teaching should be the primary one to be promoting the rest of the congregation. He is a second-line worker. The the pastors and elders are second-line workers. You are the front-line workers. We are here to support you. That's the way this works. Feed, guard. They constantly watch over the flock, Acts 20, 28. Be on guard for yourselves and for all all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. You see the function. We have to guard. We're not allowed to say, Lord, we didn't know people were picking off our flock. We didn't know people were listening to false things. We didn't know what that doctrine was and we didn't combat it. We will be held accountable before a holy God for what you knew and did not know and what you did and did not do with 
the information and the truth that was given to you. We are required to shepherd in such a way that it sees that you are given all the necessary avenues to accomplish the work of God and that there's accountability there. We guard, we feed, we guard, we discipline. The the elders must oversee the process of church discipline lest the congregation spurn holiness and grow lax in their disobedience to Scripture. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 5, I've decided to deliver such a one to the over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That is, he was administering church discipline as the apostle in charge of the church, and then now as there are no apostles but elders. Then these elders are to nurture. They must know well the condition of their flock so they can comfort, encourage, and bring healing where it's necessary. Humble, gentle, servant leadership. Always voluntary, always according to the will of God. Never for sordid gain, but with eagerness and never lording it over the flock. John 10, 11, Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. It's the first elder. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Then there's this issue of the payment of elders. Why do some get paid? Why just address that? Because there are some whose unique giftedness is to preach and teach the word and therefore the other elders of the church and then the congregation determined to free those men up in order to do that. But I will tell you this. That the one who does, if those who are being freed up to, to, to do this full time, to oversee and to preach and teach full-time are, are really, if you're looking at the nature of elders, again, they're the ones who are secondary on the elder board. Then you have the other pastors, the other fully-fledged pastors. Every elder is a pastor who then are then pouring out their lives 60, 50, 60 hours or more in a job while they're also bearing the weight of the congregation and then helping participate and help encourage and strengthen those who've been freed up to do this full-time. We have the easy job, they have the hard job. Right. We're, we're given full time to study and preach and teach the word of God while the other elders of this church are the ones who are pouring out their lives in day jobs and then also at night pouring themselves out for you. And so that's the nature of it. Some who are paying, all who are actively working, all who are graciously and uniquely gifted by God to oversee the congregation, but only in such a way as their love and humility and gentleness are carefully shown in their oversight and in their discipline because what they are doing is not the work of the ministry, but equipping you to do the work of the ministry, and that's next week. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the the privilege of, of studying again the gifted men that you've given to the church. This is a humbling task. It's a humbling thing to be used of you to help shepherd and and oversee your body. And Lord, I pray that the elders of the church would do this well. I thank you for the group of men that we have here at Grace. Godly, humble, gracious, diligent men who are giving their lives for this church. And I thank you for this church. Thank you for each member who has responded and is, is, is seeking to live out these truths, to be equipped and then use their equipping. Lord, what a, what a precious congregation. What a precious partnership that we share as those gifted to accomplish this office and yet those who are simply building up and, and, and magnifying, demonstrating the giftedness of each member of the congregation in that measure of grace to which you have allotted to them. Father, might this go well for us. Might we walk forward in unity and in grace as we seek to partner together as shepherd and flock. In your precious name, Lord Jesus.